Let's take our Bibles and uh, turn to Romans chapter 12, please. Verse 15 of Romans 12 says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Let's look the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together as believers. We thank you for the freedom we have in this country to meet. We thank you, Father God, for your word, and we thank you for its truth. Thank you for this instruction, for uh, you gave us your word, Father, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path or way. Lord God, also to give us an insight into your character. And we do pray that, Lord, you bless today as we look into your word, that you be exalted and you be praised, and that, Lord, you give us wisdom and understanding we might study your word together and learn from it. We might leave this place singing your praise and saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, just bless now as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 brings us to Paul's next instruction to us as believers. As you know, in Romans chapter 12, he's been listing a bunch of instructions for us. Nathan read some of them for us today from uh, verse 9 onwards. But the whole chapter is about instructions for you and I as believers. And we come now to the next one, which is rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And here again, Paul is concerned about our reaction to other believers. And this time, to people who are either rejoicing or weeping. And so as we come to this verse uh, today, what I want to do first of all is to consider the order of these two commands. Here in verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. You know, as I was looking at this passage and looking at this verse, I was, thought it was interesting that uh, to point out the order in which the apostle puts these two things. As here in this verse, what we note is he puts rejoicing before he puts weeping. And I think he does that deliberately. It seems to me that the question that occurs as you read this verse is this. Which of these two is more difficult? Is it more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice or to weep with those who weep? Now, on the surface, you and I might say it's easier to rejoice with those that rejoice than it is to weep with those that weep. But as you and I think about that, if you and I seriously sit down and think about that phrase, this verse, it seems perfectly clear when we examine the truth of rejoicing and weeping that rejoicing with those who rejoice is often the more difficult thing to do than to weep with those that weep. If we're honest... You and I find it harder to rejoice with those that rejoice than, those, than it is to weep with those that weep. And that's why I think here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, rejoicing is put first because it's the harder of the two. And secondly, I want you to consider with me the basic idea of these two commands. What is it that's been said here? What has been asked of us as believers? What does the Lord want you and I to do as believers? 
when he asks us to rejoice with those who do rejoice and weep with those that weep, what is he really asking of us? Well, the basic idea of this verse is the idea of empathy. The dictionary definition of empathy is this, understanding so intimate that the feelings, thoughts, and motives of one are readily com comprehended by another. Now, this word empathy is a translation of the German word, which means a feeling in. It is when someone expresses a sincere feeling to someone, showing that they understand what that person is experiencing. It's more than sympathy. This is empathy. It's where you experience what they're experiencing. You feel what they're feeling. It's feeling sad about something when somebody else is sad. It's feeling joy when somebody else is rejoicing. You and I feel what they're feeling. Empathy then is when someone else shows that they really do believe and understand what the person says he or she is going through. And right here, what the Lord is asking of us is that you and I would show empathy to other believers. That you and I would feel what they are feeling. You see, the truth is that when people feel strong emotions for something, they need someone to share it with. Wasn't that true? That when something wonderful happens to us, the first thing we want to do is share it with someone else. We want to ring them, tell them about it. We want to talk to them and tell them about it. We want somebody else to know the excitement, the joy that we are feeling. But we don't just ring anyone. We don't just talk to anyone about these things. We do it. We talk to someone we know will be excited with us. We ring someone who will feel the excitement with us. We talk to someone who we know will rejoice with us. You know, something wonderful has just happened to you, so you pick up the phone and ring a stranger. Hello, I just want to tell you, uh, the wonderful news has happened to me. We never do that. You know, your wife's just had a baby, so you pick up the phone, you just dial any number and say, I just want you to know my wife's had a baby. We don't do that, do we? The thing we do when we, when we are rejoicing, we want to tell somebody we know will rejoice with us. We don't want them to be a wet blanket when we tell them how excited we are. We want them to be excited with us. We want them to rejoice with us. That's empathy. And that's what we need to have towards each other within the church. That's what the Lord's asking of us, that you and I would show empathy to each other, that we would indeed rejoice with those that rejoice. We would feel the same excitement that they're feeling, that we would weep with those that weep. We would feel the same sadness that they are feeling. Pastor Mitchell, in his notes on Romans, said this, Rejoicing and weeping represent the hills and valleys, the ups and downs that we all inevitably feel. It's hard to live without feelings. It's unnatural. Paul doesn't say don't rejoice because everyone will think you are charismatic. Or don't weep because it means you're weak and wimpy. There's a place for genuine, appropriate emotions. And we see this reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of Christ. In John chapter 11 and verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, we read Jesus 
wept. Now you know the story of John chapter 11. Lazarus, his good friend, has died. And he has come to the place where Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, live. And the Lord is grieved over the death of Lazarus, but what grieves him to the point where he weeps is that those he loved the most had not trusted him at the point of crisis. You see, Lazarus is dead, and even his sisters said, Lord, if thou had been here, Lazarus would not have died. They didn't trust the Lord even at the point of crisis. And what Jesus responds with is a genuine, appropriate emotion. He weeps. Jesus wept. We should never forget as believers it's okay to rejoice. It's okay to weep. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul has a desire to go to Philippi, but he's not been able to go yet. He says in verse 24, But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. He wants to go to Philippi. But in the meantime, he's going to send a representative. He says in verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, and fellow soldier. But your message that he ministered to my wants... For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye heard that he'd been sick. So Aphroditus is heavy of heart. He's sad. Because the Philippians are sad over the state of Epaphroditus' health. Verse 27. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, I'm glad he didn't die. Because if he had died, I had sorrow upon sorrow. I'd have been sad if Epaphroditus had died, just like you're sad at the thought of him being sick. Verse 28. I sent him, therefore, the most carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and all such in reputation, because for the work of Christ it was nigh unto, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service towards me. Here is these two emotions. The church of Philippi was sad because Epaphroditus was sick and they'd heard about his sickness. But they could now rejoice that Epaphroditus had been made well. And Paul says, I'm glad that he could come unto you and report unto you that God had delivered him by his grace because that makes me less sorrowful. And now we all rejoice. You see, rejoicing and weeping are natural emotions. There's nothing wrong with believers rejoicing. There's nothing wrong with believers weeping. Rejoicing and weeping are a normal part of our lives, especially for you and I who are saved. And the worst thing that you and I can do to a person who expresses a genuine emotion is to ignore them. 
or to make them think that they are crazy or stupid. But if you and I know such emotions are legitimate, if we understand that God wants you and I to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, because this is a normal response, then you and I can respond in accordance with Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. We can do exactly what we're commanded to do here. We can show empathy towards our fellow believers. So now let's consider the first of these commands. Rejoice with those, or with them that do rejoice. And the significance here is not just being happy, along with those who are having fun and enjoying life. It's not just about you and I being raucous in laughter because everyone else is raucous in laughter. One commentator said this about this verse. He said, Rejoicing here is not in anything sinful or criminal or a thing of naught in men's own boastings. All such rejoicing is evil and not to be joined in, but in things good and laudable. We're commanded here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 to rejoice in those things that are good and those things that are laudable or those things which deserve praise. So when someone is rejoicing in God's blessing upon them, rejoicing in God's goodness to them, we are to join in that rejoicing with them. We're commanded here to rejoice with them. The verse tells us to rejoice when others are especially favored by God. Now remember empathy? It means, what, what this means is that if you and I are to truly show empathy towards those who are rejoicing, then when God especially favors them, then you and I are to rejoice with them as if that favor was to us. So when somebody comes to you and says, you won't believe what God did for me this week. And they get all excited about God's blessing on their life that you and I experience the same joy that they are experiencing, that we are so happy for them that God has blessed them, that we're empathetic towards them, that we feel what they are feeling when they're rejoicing. Now, the word rejoice here means to be glad, to rejoice exceedingly, to get really excited about it. So when somebody comes and says, you know, God did this for me this week. You wouldn't believe what God did for me this week. We don't just say, oh, that's nice. That we genuinely rejoice, that we get excited with them. That when they tell us of their blessing, we say, wow, praise God. We're excited with them. The commentator said this, command... This command grows out of the doctrine stated in Romans 12, 4 and 5, which says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we be many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. This command grows out of the doctrine stated in Romans 12, 4 and 5, that the church is one, that it has one interest, and therefore that there should be common sympathy in its joys and sorrows. Or enter into the welfare of your fellow Christians and show your attachment to them 
by rejoicing that they are made happy. So when they say they're happy, we get excited with them. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. 1 Corinthians 12. <coughs> and verse 26. Talking about the church, which is his body. It says in verse 26, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. When one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. That's what it's saying here in Romans 12, 15, that we rejoice with those that rejoice. We rejoice exceedingly when others are favoured by God. That's easy. Seems obvious. Surely everybody rejoices when others rejoice. Think about it for a moment. If you have some good news, God's blessed you in a very special way. If something wonderful happens to you, then isn't it true you know that if you tell some people what God has done for you, they just won't rejoice with you. You won't tell them because you know full well they won't be happy for you. They won't rejoice with you. We will go to the people who we know will be excited as we are excited. You see, you and I might think it's easy to rejoice with those that rejoice, but it's not. This is the harder of the two. This is the difficult one. It's really, you know, if you're struggling and God's not really blessing and somebody comes along and says, guess what God did for me this week? It really is tough to get excited over their excitement, isn't it? Or am I just Robinson Crusoe here and I'm the only one that experiences this? Okay? I'm the ungodly one here because that's how I feel. I tell you, if I'm having a tough time and somebody comes to me and starts praising God and excited about what God's done, I find it very hard, if I am honest, in my flesh, to get excited with those who are getting excited. It's the tough one. It's the hard one. It is difficult. This is a difficult command to follow. Rejoicing with those that rejoice, empathizing with them. I mean, this is not just saying, praise God, from our lips. This is from you and I saying from our heart, we are rejoicing with them as if that blessing was our blessing. So when they come and say, you won't believe what God did for me this week. I've been praying for this and this is what God did above and beyond. And we from our hearts say, praise God. He blessed you. As if we'd been blessed with that blessing. Now tell me that's not hard to do. That's a tough command. And I think that's why Paul puts it first. I think that's why the Lord puts it first here. Because I think this is the tougher of the two. You see, when you and I rejoice, not everybody will rejoice with us. It's the hard thing to do. That's what happened to King David. Go back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you would, please. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The setting of 2 Samuel chapter 6 is that David is on the throne of Israel. He's the king of Israel. The event of Daniel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is the setting is the nation of Israel. And the event is the homecoming of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now you know that under King Saul, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken captive by the Philistines. And the Philistines were all sorts of trouble with the Ark of God. They'd put it into their temple with their God and their God kept falling over and losing his head. That was their statue, okay? And so they were reluctant to have the Ark of the Covenant around and they had taken it and they delivered it to a man's house and stayed there. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Lord has been returned to Jerusalem. After all kinds of trouble, including the death of Uzzah, remember Uzzah, he put out his hand to stop the Ark of the Covenant falling off that cart that David had sent to bring the Ark back. Uzzah died, and after all kinds of trouble and trying to get the Ark back, it's being brought back to Jerusalem according to God's command. The priests are carrying it upon the staves back to Jerusalem. Now we know that David, the king, was a man after God's own heart. And David knew what a blessing the return of the ark of God would be to the nation and what a blessing it would be to God to have the ark of the covenant back in the temple, back in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And David has made no secret of the fact that he was glad that the ark was coming back. So let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Abinadam, and all that pertained unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obedem into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they had, uh, that bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. David's excited about this. They'd gone six paces and he sacrificed an ox and fatlings. And they walked a little bit further and he sacrificed more. David is excited about this. That at long last, the ark of the Lord is coming back to Jerusalem. David's heart is bursting with excitement, with rejoicing over this. And he celebrates this homecoming with sacrifice and offerings to the Lord. And the center of his joy, the focus of his rejoicing, was the Lord. Look in verse 15. So, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpet. There was great rejoicing as the ark of the Lord returns to Jerusalem. In the view of all the people, David did something unusual for a king. He takes off his kingly robe, which is a sign of great humility as he takes off that robe, and he puts upon him a linen ephod. In other words, he dresses like everybody else is dressed in the procession. He doesn't look like the king anymore. He just looks like one of the, one of the people. He's dressed in a linen ephod. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord and all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. Took off his kingly garment, and he was dressed just like everybody else in the procession. And we read in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 14 that David also danced before the Lord. You know, the excitement overwhelms David. The ark coming back, and David didn't hold back anything in his expression of worship. He didn't dance out of obligation, but out of a heartfelt worship. That's why he took off his kingly gown 
and started to join in the excitement, in the rejoicing, in the, in the whole uh, part of this returning of the ark. David is involved and David is dancing before the Lord. He was glad to bring the ark of the Lord back to Jerusalem. Now this verse in no way supports the idea of dancing that people do today. This was a dance of joy. It was not with a woman. It was not with ungodly music. It was not with fleshly pleasure. Dance here means to leap for joy. To express excitement. David is jumping. He's leaping. He's clapping his hands. He's excited. Okay? Something thrilling is happening. You know, it's the kind of thing you and I do when we see something exciting happening. You know, you're watching the kids running a race at school and they're coming first. What do we do? We're up there jumping up and down. We're dancing. Okay, we're clapping our hands. We're excited. That's David. Okay? He's not out there doing a waltz. Okay? Not out there doing some jig that, you know, the young people do today. He's out there excited. He's just... In front of the crowd, he is just having a great time. The ark of the Lord is coming back and King David is overwhelmed with excitement. It was a very humble and genuine response to the blessing of the Lord. It was an act of praise and an act of worship. He was rejoicing and all Israel caught on. Verse 15 says, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of trumpet. Everybody is involved as the whole house of Israel is rejoicing and excited and this trumpet sound and there is just rejoicing going on as they bring back the ark. They're excited at it all. Everyone's involved. That is except one. Everyone caught the excitement. They caught the joy. Everybody is rejoicing with those that are rejoicing. Except one. One person in Israel wasn't at the celebration. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was Michael, David's wife. For some reason, she didn't see the blessing of God. She didn't understand the significance of this event. She didn't understand the importance of this event. And so she wasn't there. At the event. She wasn't there and she wasn't impressed. Look in verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the win a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. She wasn't rejoicing with those that rejoiced. She despised him in her heart. She saw the holy joy of her husband and she despised him for it. David Michael, David's wife, Michael, didn't appreciate David's exuberance on that day, David's excitement on that day. She didn't appreciate it. She felt it wasn't dignified for the king to express his emotions before God. It seems as though she thought it was inappropriate behavior for a king to take off his kingly robe and to leap for joy over the ark coming back. The ark's been gone for a long time. There's been a lot of difficulty getting the ark back. 
David's decision to send a new cart to return the ark had caused the death of Uzzah. I'm sure David's heart was, was grieved at that event. There was much going on in David's heart. In fact, we know that David gets before the Lord and says, What's going on, Lord? He couldn't understand what was going on. What was going on was he had failed to read God's word and brought back the ark according to the word of God, which is the ark was never to be carried on a new cart. It was to be carried on staves by the priests. But now David's got that sorted out. The ark's coming back. David's excited. David is over the moon, but his wife doesn't think that this is the behavior fitted for a king. You see, David was rejoicing and praising the Lord. He was not doing this for the entertainment of the people. He wasn't doing this for the benefit of Israel. He was doing this before the Lord. Look in verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in, place, in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among, and he dwelt, uh, sorry, and he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine, so that all the people, so that all the people departed, every one to his house. David is doing this before the Lord and he's excited about what the Lord is doing. So what does Michael do? In response to this, we read that then David returned to bless his household. He wanted to share his joy with his family. But when he did, he got a bucket of cold water dumped on him. Look in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. He went to his house to tell them all the exciting news. He wanted to share it with somebody. The most important person in his life was his family. He wanted to share it with them. And we read, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who covered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. <laughs> I don't suppose that's quite what David expected when he got home. I think he thought when he got home, the family was going to be excited. They were going to rejoice with him. But Michael comes, and with biting sarcasm, she criticizes David. And she could have quite easily ruined the day for David. She stuck a knife in his back and gave him a sharp kick on the shins for good measure. David is simply praising God and she says, what a disgrace, David. How dare you take off your kingly garment and shamelessly uncover yourself and act just like one of your servants, David. Someone who really mattered to David, his wife, David receives this criticism. Michael didn't rejoice with them that rejoiced. Something got in the way. 
of her genuine responding to the joy of her husband, something prevented her from sharing his joy. And I think a clue to why she felt the way is found in the fact that she stayed home, didn't go to the celebration, the returning of the ark of the Lord. She obviously didn't have a heart for the Lord like David. She obviously was more concerned about herself, her position and her respectability and the image of David than she cared about the spiritual blessings of Israel. The thing that prevented her was self. Uncrucified, selfish concern. She cared only that her respectability might be compromised by her husband's action. David seems to indicate this to us in verse 21 where we read this. David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to point me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. He said, what are you talking about, Michael? I am doing what I'm doing before the Lord. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what impression it gives. I'm doing this before the Lord. I genuinely love my God. I genuinely have a heart for God. I genuinely am excited that the Ark of the Covenant has returned to Jerusalem. I don't care what you think, Michael. I love God. And the implication is that she doesn't. She doesn't have the same attitude as David. And you know, the thing that will stop us from sharing the, the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the thing that will stop us from genuinely rejoicing when they rejoice, is self, just like Michael. That might be a way of jealousy, because we want the blessing they've got, and we don't understand why God's not blessed us, but bless them. It might be disinterest. It might be that you and I have a superior attitude to them. Or it might be because we have something already against that person. We don't like them, therefore we don't want them to be blessed. But if self gets in the way of rejoicing with those that rejoice, then it's wrong. It's simply wrong. And it does not promote fellowship within the church. Genuine love, which is the love that we're to have one toward another, means rejoicing with those that rejoice. Christ rejoiced with them that rejoiced, didn't he? Remember the marriage of Canaan and Galilee? He went to the marriage of Canaan and Galilee and rejoiced with those that rejoiced. We all need this Christ-like characteristic. If we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, as Luke 10, 27 says, then it will be possible to rejoice with those that rejoice. For we will generally want what's best for others. The command of God is for us to rejoice with those that rejoice. And next time we will see that we're also to weep with those that weep. But today, by God's grace, let's strive to rejoice those who do rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this challenge to rejoice for those that rejoice. This
thing that is so difficult, Father God, if we're honest with ourselves, to do. Lord, help us to have a heart that loves you, a heart that is so in tune with you that when others rejoice, we can rejoice with them, that we can empathize with them, that we can get excited with them, not just for them, but with them. Lord God, your name might be lifted up and praised as we seek to serve you together. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.